0: I'm still kind of looking in. I partake in some of the the ceremonies and things like that, but I still don't quite feel like I'm not in that culture yet. I'm not part of, like, it's it's mine. And I think maybe that might be one of the things that uh, I'm kind of regretful about, about having uh, no, no culture.
1: Indigenous Perspectives Indigenous Perspectives
2: Indigenous Perspectives.
1: Stories from Indigenous Public Servants. say, This is Indigenous Perspectives, a program where we hope to explore the experiences and perspectives of Indigenous public servants, what reconciliation means to them, and what it can be for Canada.
2: Everything is spiritual. Everything has a spirit. Everything...
1: Everything was brought to you by the Creator. The one Creator. One regret I have in life is that I'm constrained by the English language. For all of its benefits, it has limits. It's a container. I'm accustomed to living inside of it because it's all I've known. But I have to remind myself periodically that while it seems to fit me well, that's only because I grew up from inside of it. I didn't shape it. It shaped me. Language and culture are inexorably connected. Written language is a keepsake box, a time capsule, a vehicle that conveys culture from the past through the present and into the future. Louis Riel, Métis teacher, spokesman, and founder of Manitoba said, We must cherish our inheritance. We must preserve our nationality for the youth, of our future. The story should be written down to pass on. But stories are shaped so much by the language they are written in. Because at its very core, a language encapsulates a culture's perception of reality. English describes reality as I perceive it, but it's not an adequate container or the right vehicle other stories, from other cultures, and their realities. Thompson Highway, residential school survivor, social worker, classical pianist, author, and playwright. He is fluent in French, English, and his native Cree, and he said, English is so hierarchical. In Cree, we don't have animate-inanimate comparisons between things. Animals have souls that are equal to ours. Rocks have souls. Trees have souls. Trees are who, not what. That's profound revelation. And that's why taking away indigenous languages was so profoundly cruel. Under the guise of civilization and betterment, our country tore the essence out of beautiful and proud civilizations. Enforcing English upon indigenous children, we not only dictated how they should speak, but demanded a fundamental reordering to how they should think. A new worldview, which reflected a foreigner's perception Of their world. We took children with cultures that were too complex and too vast and too subtle to fit into the crude container that is the English language, and then were angered when they didn't fit comfortably inside of it. But it's not too late to reclaim that heritage, embrace traditional languages, Expand our thought and expression. Restore the perception of reality, of equality, of interconnectedness and interdependence. The wisdom of thinking, which could have prevented the environmental calamity that we're faced with today. And now, in their own words the thoughts and feelings of some of Canada's own public servants about their path of cultural self-discovery. Tell me a little bit more about your journey in, in understanding your background, your ancestors, and what you've learned and what you hope to learn. What kind of strength it gives you and and what more you want to do to have that attachment to your to your past? I always
3: knew that uh, that I had a grandmother on my father's side or a great grandmother on my father's side whose last name was Arku, who was a native, and I knew on my mother's side simply because of how they how they looked, <laughs> but um I really never had any any real knowledge besides that. And uh, recently, my uncle was able to look into it a bit further and found proof that we're linked to the family that signed the um, Treaty of Sovereignty. And interestingly enough, um, the woman in question, that's uh, my great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, married a French loyalist who was a descendant of the King of France. So I thought that was really you know an exciting little tidbit of information but the most important part for me in terms of my knowledge is not necessarily knowledge of my own history but knowledge of the social injustice that we're trying to repair as a country and seeing that a little bit more closely and a little bit more clearly that is what is invigorating me to continue to deepen my my research on it all and my and to deepen my resolve to be part of the solution.
0: I think I'd like to maybe start just a little bit about myself too, so you can kind of understand my perspective of things. Yes. Um, I felt sort of like um, sort of an orphan of culture in that, I, in, in that sense, that I didn't really have any culture um, from my native side of my family because. My great grandmother, she was uh, full blood Algonquin, and she never spoke uh, anything but uh, uh, the native languages. And um, through, I'm not sure even what the circumstances were, she came to marry a uh, an Englishman, a French englishman And uh, from there on, basically, our our ties to the culture they started to fade. And uh, we have have the vast majority of my family are status or are blood natives. So in a sense, uh, I kind of grew up. In uh, a little bit more of a colonialized uh, lifestyle, uh, so much so that when I was growing up, I didn't even realize that I was different from other people. And uh, I am basically uh, Aboriginal, so it's uh, it's something that's kind of it always kind of held me back when I and I didn't even really know sometimes it was at its advantage because there there was a lot of racism growing up, um, and I never really identified it as racism. I just identified it as people didn't like me, not liking me. Um, but as I grew up. And as I got older, I started to kind of look back and think, you know, maybe that wasn't because uh, they just didn't like me. Maybe it was because they had this kind of preconception of what I should or shouldn't be and it uh, probably affected a lot of relationships you know, growing up even just friends uh, and um, mentors, tutors and things like that as well. I found that uh, particularly in high school, uh, I was always kind of put off to the side and not expected
1: to to achieve greatness. What can you tell me about the difference between people that have grown up understanding who they are and what their culture is versus people that it, it's a recent thing that, they're, that they've are that they discovered about themselves and they're still in the midst of this learning, this journey of, of discovering their culture, which they haven't been connected to for most of their lives?
4: Well, that was part of me because I live near... At the time, they were called reserves. I detest the word. Um, I called them community. But I always played with the kids. I even spoke so as a child. I went to church with them. I sang the hymns. I went to the powwows. I went to the celebrations. They would come to visit our house. But they were still les indiens, And we never, in our family, we never acknowledged that we were Métis. But you know, I knew from my dad, but nobody else never really talked about it in our family, and that's the sad part, you know, when you have to start learning who you are, when you could have, and that's part of the reconciliation process. We need to reconcile with us as to who we are internally and externally. It's it's a hard work, but it's so wonderful when you discover it, it's like it's like winning a lottery, and it's very important for you as an individual to keep going to do wonderful things and it doesn't have to be uh becoming an executive director. it doesn't have to be having a bigger house or a bigger car, but it has to do with being you and being re- knowing in your heart of hearts who you are and being happy with that.
5: So I grew up mostly away from my traditional community, but I was very much aware of it and very much immersed in the issues and causes around Indigenous uh, rights, discrimination against uh, Indigenous peoples and challenges that that people and communities were facing. My mother was uh, very active in human rights causes, anti-discrimination causes in the city of Montreal as I was growing up. She actually worked at the Native Friendship Center in Montreal uh, at one point when I was very young. And later on, she got involved as a researcher on the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. This is now the early 90s, and I'm in high school. And when I hit university and was trying to decide what to do, one of the things I ended up picking up was the report of the Royal Commission. I was able to learn a lot about uh, the history from that, of the, the Canada's history, from just having access to that, and it became a catalyst for bringing a lot of interests together in terms of family and history and, again, just what uh, my vocation was going to be.
0: I had a really good friend who was uh, excellent in school academically, um, a very white individual. And uh, we both hung out all the time. We did similar, I uh, had similar interests and we did similar projects in school. And uh, a lot of times they would carry him forward. And I, you know, I get my grades and everything, but that was kind of it. You know, no, nobody expected me even to go to college for, or to seek an education for that matter. Um, so from there, uh, I, just to bring it back to the culture kind of aspect, uh, I was living in the colonial culture. Um, you know, white person's culture, I'm not sure the appropriate term for it. Um but I never quite fit in and I never was quite let in on all the secrets and all the you know all the the jokes and everything like that. And uh, it's something that like I said I didn't really understand growing up. And then when I was an adult and I started recognizing racism in my adult life. I I kind of started recognizing it in my past too. And uh, I'm not that resentful for anything like that. But it was, it was definitely something where, uh, as an adult, I was understanding that I didn't really have that native culture, and I really couldn't say that the colonialized, white, Canadian, French, Canadian, whatever it is, culture, it wasn't really mine either.
2: This is a healing journey of a broken nation, and it's my healing journey. And for me, it began after a personal crisis following a week on the psych ward of the Ottawa General. When I was there, my husband brought me a gift, a necklace, and he told me he had bought it from a vendor on the Spark Street Mall. He was really afraid and he had told the man that, you know, his wife was in the hospital and he wanted to bring her a gift. And the man suggested a necklace with the wooden beads and a healing bear. He brought it to me and I wore it constantly. When I returned to my job in the private sector, after three months of sick leave for mental depression, I was met at the door with a pink slip. On one level, I knew it was a blessing, but on another, my ego was insulted and I was very angry. That November, I began working as a casual at Indian and Northern Affairs Canada. Prior to that, I hadn't worked in the government. I arrived the day the department was readying itself to accept the report of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. Uh, I was preparing the communications materials, binders and binders of Qs and As, key messages, with responses to questions about how it would respond to the 440 recommendations. Within a week of arriving at INAC, I discovered the KUMIC, and it made my heart sing. I remember going home, and telling my husband all about it, a traditional lodge right in the midst of the government offices. It was like a sanctuary for me, a sacred space where I felt at home, with the grandfathers and the trees around me holding me. I described the lodge to my husband in detail and told him it was called the Kumik. As I said that word, he spun around, looked at me quizzically, and asked me to repeat the word. Kumik, I said, K-U-M-I-K. There was silence, and then he said, you know that necklace I gave to you when you were in the hospital? And I nodded. And he said, the man who sold it to me said you had to find the kumik. I had no idea what he was talking about. But when you said that word, I remembered. It was at that moment, after he shared that information, that I knew my healing journey had begun. (coughs)
0: I grew up in Northern uh, uh, Ontario, and uh, there is definitely a lot of stigma there towards uh, specifically Aboriginals from from, res- uh, re- uh, from res- Reservations, and uh, if you, even if you're not from the reservation, you know, there's a stigma that follows you around. And growing up, I had a few other Aboriginal friends as well, and they were kind of cut off from the, the original cultures also, and they kind of embraced the colonialized way, and being Aboriginal themselves visibly and culturally, maybe not attached to it, they themselves would express kind of racism, like, uh, like inward towards their own people. It was really kind of confusing growing up. And I, and I kind of grew up in a really idealist way. I had a, I had a pretty good life growing up, to be honest. I weren't well off by any means, but we had, uh, you know, we had the basics for growing up as an eighties kid. And I really liked things like Star Trek and a lot of idealist kind of media. So, Growing up, I thought that the future was going to be like Star Trek, that everybody was going to be multicultural and that, that race wouldn't matter. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really not not really not the way it is. And uh, it's a nice dream and everything, but it definitely prefaced me for a lot of, um, I guess maybe, I wouldn't say disappointment, but uh, just kind of confusion with how was, as other people thought. Uh, even things like the politics of things like left and right, uh, I wasn't until my late twenties, almost thirties, before I even understood what far left and far right uh, views were. I always thought everybody was, you know, a really positive-thinking mind and accepting and tolerant. But, but uh, it was something that kind of, you know, you grow up, you get you get out of that narrative. Nowadays, I, I can't say that I've ever experienced any real racism, besides maybe a few preconceptions from employers. I mean, employers when I first moved to Ottawa I generally didn't expect me to be a thinking person. They expected me to just be a manual laborer and they're not have anything to offer beyond that. And uh, I was I, I kind of surprised a lot of people, but even if I did show a really good, strong foot forward, that I think the preconception still held me back. And uh, and it was actually one of the reasons why I decided to go to school, get an education, because I knew that no matter what I did, if, if I was in the manual labor, or service industry or customer service or whatever it was. I was always going to be kept down on the on the floor level the, the ground level. And then you're going to go up the, the chain very far.
1: Do you see that there are different challenges between uh, being an indigenous person living in an urban environment versus someone in a rural environment?
4: Well they're still segregated. They live in specific areas. We know in Ottawa which streets have the, uh, that corner of the city. We know that. Or that, uh, housing development in other parts of the city. So that's difficult to break. And, and that's the, the reconciliation part there too. It's tough going. And you only hear the sad stories and the sadder stories. You don't hear the good news of all those people who are learning, their are relearning their language, relearning their cultures, doing the ceremonies, learning about the ceremonies, learning from the elders. We don't hear much of that. It's always somebody was put in jail. The housing development is a mess. We don't hear about the stories like Ganawaki, where they've changed their sign in their community. A little bit story, you know, it's not much. Uh, and all the other communities that are doing the same, like the people from St. Martin are finally going back in Manitoba to their land. Uh, they've lived in Winnipeg for six years. Like, that's sad, living in a hotel for six years. Well. Maybe they weren't in hotels. I don't know. But that's the sad part, that we're still taking territory. We're still not acknowledging territory. That's sad.
2: While at INAC, I spent many lunch hours in the Kumik, listening to the teachings of the elders, listening and learning. I also made personal appointments to talk with the visiting elders, trying to make sense of my feelings and personal struggles at home and at work. I spent three years at INAC. Then uh, we moved to Dubai. I returned to the public service several years later. Reintegrating was a struggle I never anticipated. Moving home was fraught with challenges. My teenage daughter told me I'd ruined her life. My husband was searching for work. My son was bewildered by the public school system, and I struggled with my work as manager of strategic communications with Western economic diversification. I was unhappy and feeling lost and overwhelmed. In June 2009, I transferred to Health Canada. In August, I attended a drum-making workshop there and made an Aboriginal hand drum. I wanted to learn how to use it. Someone told me about a noon outdoor drum circle at the lodge, located in the basement of the Brook Claxton building, the Ishkote Lodge. Ishkote means fire within. And I went to the drum circle reluctantly, not sure what to expect. But when I walked in, I was warmly welcomed. It was like coming home, and I became a regular, cherishing the opportunity to drum and sing in that sacred space, learning the songs, and healing. The more I drummed, the better I felt. I drummed at noon on Thursdays and Monday evenings after work. My drum sisters became my friends and support network. Like at INAC, I began spending noon hours at the lodge, listening to the elders, listening and learning. And I sought their counsel and support with my struggles. The more I learned, the more curious I became. I remember one noon hour when Grandmother Malihatqua from British Columbia drummed and sang. As she sang, I could feel myself flying. I was on the back of an eagle, and I could feel the softness of the down of its neck between my fingers. When she finished and explained it was an eagle song, the tears flowed. How had I known that, I wondered. Sharing what I experienced with those in the lodge was transformational for me, as I described what I had experienced. Tears of joy flowed down my face. The next time Grandmother Mali visited the lodge, a chain of events unfolded that led to a personal healing ceremony and a an naming ceremony. As I reflect on that week, even today, I struggle to make sense of it. Yet again, it was transformational and enhanced my commitment to understanding the Anishinaabe way of being. My healing journey continues so many magical moments and miraculous encounters that heal my spirit. I know the healing the elders, the teachings, the drumming, the sweats, and the ceremonies have brought to me, and I am so grateful. My deep gratitude compels me to share what I have learned and what I know, a deeply personal connection to this way of life that at times seems to defy rational explanation. I cannot explain why I feel so much a part of this world, how it cradles me in its ways, teaching me how to love, give thanks for all the blessings in my life, and be ever mindful of my connection with all my relations. I now hear the wisdom of the water and see the ancestors among the rocks and trees. I speak to the crows and truly understand I am not alone. We are all connected. All my relations.
0: I'm in a really happy place in my life right now. I'm, I'm pretty, uh, I'm, I'm rediscovering my culture. I'm doing it all personally. Uh, it's mostly started with music, which is a great driver for anybody. And i uh, started going to powwows. And uh, it's got some CDs of some of the traditional music and some of the modern stuff and things like that. But even so, I'd say I'm still kind of looking in. I'm still not quite, I'm not in that culture yet. I'm not part of, I partake in some of the, the ceremonies and things like that, but I still don't quite feel like, like it's, it's mine. And I think maybe that might be one of the things that uh, I'm kind of regretful about, about having uh, no, no culture.
1: Indigenous Perspectives, Stories from Indigenous Public Servants, is a production of Employment and Social Development Canada. All opinions expressed on Indigenous Perspectives are strictly those of the individual and are not necessarily those of their employer. Public servants featured in this episode were Fanny Bernard, Janice Edgar, Jeanette Fraser, Ryan Jador, and Daniel Chate. Our main title music is by Boogie the Beat, with additional music provided by Boogie the Beat and Greg Ryder. I'm Todd Lyons, host, writer, and technical producer for this series. Thank you for listening.